welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, good evening, or good morning, or whatever time of day you're watching this. If you're live, it is evening. Uh, welcome to Critical Witness. We have another conversation. We're sort of hitting our, our max capacity of uh, conversations this month. We have uh, had four out of four in February. Um, we have another f- potentially controversial subject uh, tonight. We're talking about gender. Um, more towards how churches can be inclusive with regards to uh, trans and um, what the biblical idea of uh, trans and transgender issues, how we uh, help support people. Um, And we've got uh, Andrew Bunt with us, who is going to introduce himself in a moment, uh, who like Anne from last week, was uh, works with livingout.org, and we're going to have a, a conversation, I imagine. Uh, Dan is back as well from his uh, week off, and uh, we're going to just go straight into the conversation. So, Andrew, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, it would be great to hear a bit of your story, so um, both in, with regards to how you became a Christian, uh, where you're based, and, and maybe your connection to... Well, both living out and and the topic of of tonight. So, over to you. Who are you? Sure. Who am I? Great. Well, thank you. It's <laughs> nice to be with you. Um, so, who am I? So, I um, grew up in Hastings, which is near. I live in Bexhill now. It's along the coast from me here. Grew up in a Christian home and became a Christian. It's quite a young kid. I think I first kind of chose to follow Jesus about the age of four. I have a very vague memory of that, but I have a clearer memory of kind of being about age nine and choosing to kind of follow it with Jesus at that point. And I guess I had quite a, a very fortunate, and privileged kind of, and in some ways normal Christian upbringing, that kind of thing I've always uh, knew about God, knew about Jesus, always had some level of relationship with him. Came to my teen years and various things happened. One is um, that I, I realized that although I'd chosen to follow Jesus, there wasn't much active relationship there. And so for me, my teen years were a really significant point of realizing actually if I'm a Christian, I can have an active relationship with Jesus, not just our kind of made this choice from living this kind of certain way but also became really significant just in understanding myself i guess and particularly my sexuality so i had expected as the kind of christian kid growing up in church that my life would look like most of the people's lives around me seemed to be like it seemed to be implied was the uh expected or normal way of things working that i would grow up i'd get married in my early 20s i'd uh, settle down with a good job and have a few kids and that seemed to be what everyone did seemed to be what you're kind of meant to do as a christian but I reached my early teen years and found that I'm same-sex attracted. And so kind of began to wrestle with, okay, I want to follow Jesus faithfully. I also find myself to be attracted to guys rather than girls. What does that mean? And how do I faithfully follow Jesus? And so that started the journey of kind of exploring those kind of questions. Of actually, what does the Bible say? What does God ask of me as a follower of Jesus? And as I kind of, I came from a position at a church that believed the kind of traditional historic Christian sexual ethic, that sex and marriage are reserved for relationships between one man and one woman. As I explored what the Bible says, as I explored different views on that, I came to believe that is what God says. That is what God was asking of me. And then really another stage in my journey was working out what does that actually mean in practice? It's very well to say that 
and to say you're going to do that but actually is that doable is that plausible and so i'd say my kind of early 20s particularly when i left home went to uni were a time of working out what's it going to look like to be single and celibate for probably the rest of my life how do i thrive as a follower of jesus as someone who's seeking to be obedient to him with my sexuality when i'm same-sex attracted and so that kind of feeds in obviously to how i'm now with living out so that was kind of a, a good kind of journey of 10 or so years from realizing i'm same-sex attracted to really wrestling with what does the bible say what's this look like for me how do i now do this out can i live this out does this work and then more recently i've yeah, been much more involved in kind of helping people think about these topics how do we best love uh uh, LGBT plus people, how do we best support? How do we make our churches, as you say, kind of truly inclusive of people? And uh, Living Out is a fantastic organization who have blessed me in many ways for many years. And so it's a real privilege to be asked to, to join them. And I primarily work with them on kind of on writing and speaking and thinking around all sorts of different topics and seeking to uh, equip churches, which is what we kind of do. And I guess on the on the gender side, where this has become or, or why it's interesting to me, I think there are various things. Part of it is my own personal story, my own experience. So there was a, a time in my childhood when I believed that internally I was a girl, even though externally I was a boy and everyone thought I was a boy. And the reason I remember it so clearly is I remember distinctly the, the moment I realized, oh no, what if I get pregnant? Obviously not knowing how these things happen. And then my great secret will be found out. I remember really thinking I was in my grandparents' porch. I have no idea why it happened there or what it is, but it's such a vivid, well, it's a few very vivid memories of my kind of childhood years. And that did abate, that kind of went away over time. Uh, but there was, I think, still this lingering thing of not really feeling like I was a real man. And really, it's only the last few years I've come to realize how pronounced that was in my life and how that was still really affecting me. And how I, although I wouldn't have said that I was a, a woman trapped in a guy's body, and I wouldn't have said I wanted to be a woman. Actually, I also was very uncomfortable being a man. And so uh, things like I would say, or he would say that he's a man. It was kind of like, the men are over there, me and the girls were over here. And when a guy says something we think is a bit silly, we're going to go, of course, he would say that he's a man, as if I'm not kind of part of that group. Um, and things like I kind of, I, I try to harbor the secret desire that a female friend would invite me to their um, hen party. I hated uh, stag dudes, kind of always wanted to go to the hen party and just realized that I wanted to side with the girls. And so even just in the last kind of two or three years, for me, it's being as become more comfortable with the fact that I'm a man. What does that mean? How does that fit with the fact that many of my likes and dislikes and preferences and all sorts, frankly, are traditionally deemed feminine? What does that mean? And again, what does that mean for wanting to be a faithful follower of Jesus? So I think that's been part of my interest in the mm. subject. But also, mm. I think as I began to learn about the reality of trans and that some people are trans and the reality of gender dysphoria, about kind of five or six years ago, realizing that was an experience which was very akin to my experience as a same-sex attracted guy in the church. Of here's a very um, or experience people don't understand. It's not all that common. Churches maybe just don't know how to respond or are responding badly. And there's a great risk actually. Lots of people being harmed by the church and not realizing how good God's word is and how wonderful the gospel is. The good news is for them. I thought, okay, here's an opportunity actually for us to try and be proactive about learning about a topic learning to uh, to engage and understand people and bring the good news of jesus to them so i think that has mm -hmm. the, the similarity maybe is between those two experiences has made given me a particular interest in this topic there's quite yeah there's quite a lot in that and just just maybe to park a thought process what just if i say it out loud i'll probably remember it but the the sort of connection between sexually sexuality and gender or at least gender in the sense of sex there seems to be a common connection or, th or thread at least that people are 
are finding in, in what I've read. So maybe, maybe we can explore that in a bit. But before before we do, it'd just be really interesting just to sort of process that out a little bit. Talking about these some of these terms, uh, Dan with his medical background as well would be. I'm sure you can answer some of these a little bit more clearly. So we're talking about gender and sex and culture medicine seems to separate the two what what are those differences uh and, and why are we seeing so many genders um i guess is is one of the big questions um and is that i'll stop upstairs <laughs> I'll, stop, I'll stop there before i ask another question what, what is what is the difference between sex and gender yeah and that is the key question this kind of takes you straight to the heart of of transgender experience in a start really and whether we see those words are the same or different so starting with sex which is the easier one which is various terms used for that biological sex assigned sex that is our classification as male or female which is based on our on our biology on our body on our chromosomes our, our gonads all different different elements of us that's in there the, the things that are what we call sexually dimorphic there's two different types and those two different types are orientated towards reproduction. So it's the parts of our body that are orientated towards reproduction, which are dimorphic. They come in two types, which distinguish us as male or female. And on one level, that is kind of universally agreed. Among scientists, it's universally agreed the only way to distinguish between uh, sexes of male and female is between those dimorphic uh, reproductive systems. And that's true kind of across species and stuff as well. Gender then becomes more complicated. In, up until not all that long ago, the word gender would have just been another word for sex. So if you talked mm -hmm. about someone's gender, you'd have been talking about the biological reality of their body and the part that they or the part they have potential to play in reproduction. But that has changed over the last, I'm not sure what it is, 50 years maybe it is. And so now gender is using a variety of ways and maybe two halves of it particularly. One way it's talked about is our internal sense of who we are. So it's not what our body says about whether we are male or female. It's about how we feel inside, about whether we're a man or a woman, or whether we're masculine or feminine, or both or neither, or somewhere in between. And that's one of the reasons there are so many, because actually gender now is being separated from biology, something quite um, concrete and objective, and something which is dimorphic in two, two types, to something which is internal, which in that sense is subjective. It's based on what we as subjects feel about ourselves. Mm. And therefore, we have quite took out a huge, huge range of um, experiences. The other way that gender is used or talked about is kind of um, society's understandings of what it means to express the fact you're a man or a woman. The kind of common ways of doing that or the expected ways um, and how we present ourselves or present our biological sex or our gender identity to the world. And so that, that word is complicated, it's used in so many ways. And often when people talk about gender, it's just worth clarifying what are we talking about? What element of gender are we talking mm -hmm. about in that? And so trans experience comes into this exactly because trans experience is when there is some level of disconnect between biological sex, what the body is saying, and experience gender or gender identity, what we feel inside, how we feel ourselves to be. And transgender is this kind of umbrella term for uh, a wide range of experiences and expressions of some level of disconnect between those two things. Gotcha. That's really helpful. Um, just so that's now become the language of gender in, in in that gender is assigned to you um that, that seems to be the the kind of language i'm hearing around transgender that it's now becoming 
um, or maybe that's more non-binary is I'm, I'm no longer choosing what's been assigned to me. Is, is that language of assignment? Is is that where's is that from the medical background or is that from um, more this kind of uh, I am what I feel background? Like, where, yeah. where does that fit in? Yeah. So so it tends to be assigned tends to be attached to sex rather than gender. Because a common view would be no one can assign your gender because only you can tell people what gender you are because that's what you feel inside. Only you can know that. <laughs> sex is said to be assigned when people think that actually we shouldn't distinguish who people are based on the biological structures in their body. And in a sense, I think it has started outside of medical circles. It started in certain ideas. Kind of, you know, it's a Judas about the radical feminism, all this kind of stuff that begins, that even says biological sex, even as a social construct, would even actually push against the idea there is something concrete and objective about biological sex. It kind of flows from that, and then that flows into medical practice. So the reason that sometimes now, I don't know actually how widespread it is, sometimes in medical circles, sex would be said to be assigned. And that has flown, I think, from that direction of kind of radical feminism and the kind of philosophical, cultural ways of thinking about things flows into that even though there's you know many people who'd say we need to recognize biological sex and even just at the moment with the new census coming out there's huge debates and back and forth at the moment on whether the question will be about your gender or your biological sex and people saying we need to know the biological sex because that tells us important things and we can look at the health of the nation and different things based on that and so it is a real point of clash or does it matter that we need to talk about biological sex not being assigned or being objective in the kind of medical scientific world Cool. Yeah, I, I, I would just, um, yeah, just uh, if I can just chip in quickly. Yeah, building on what Andrew said about sex, like the, um, I think the, the way most biologists will understand sex is, is like he said, something objective. It's, I, I've always understood it to be, um, you know, sex is, um, you know, in, in mammals, like you said, we're sexually dimorphic. So we all have, um, so different sexes have different, different characteristics. Um, male or female and basically male and female is essentially whether you have the biological structures to produce small gametes uh, which is sperm male or you have the biological structures that are ordered to producing large gametes which are eggs uh, and that's what designates your sex um what what and and, and what what what, I, what what people what the problem today is people are conflating gender and sex and that's where it comes really confusing because you've got one generation where um, essentially sex was uh, synonymous with gender. So they just meant, they meant the same thing. But you've got a newer generation coming now who do not um, do not support that premise. They're, they're two distinct things. Um, like you were saying, one is, uh, you know, is, is talking about your, um, your biological structures. And the other one is talking about how you, how you express yourself, um, how, how you express your gender. Um, and um, even then, the, the language is, is very confusing because even the, the whole, I'm not sure Angie, you can expand, expand this, but even the notion of saying trans, transgender is, was initially used to assumed a dichotomy, you know, between, there, were, there, were, there were two, it's male or female, you know, it's, or, or uh, a woman or, or, or a man. And, and now it's become incredibly confusing because potentially, um, given some descriptions of some understandings of gender, there is a limitless paradigm uh, for, for it, there's, there could be any number. There's no way it's, it's utterly subjective. Um, 
which is problematic when in in, in the med in, in the medical field when you then start conflating sex and gender because uh, if someone comes in um, and you're and you're you're asking about their gender and not their sex that could affect you know treatments uh, you know all sorts of things you know does this person have a uterus could this be uterine cancer do they have a prostate could it prostate cancer and it becomes very you know yeah. uh, it, culturally we need to kind of agree on what we're gonna what we're gonna do because it potentially going to become very confusing. Yeah, and that's why you know, one of the many reasons this conversation is so important is actually is some of the decisions we make, which could just seem kind of philosophical, do we get to decide who we are, actually can have real life and death consequences even actually for medical treatment and stuff. And I think that can be overlooked. And it's important for us here actually to always know all the consequences for real lives actually of decisions and ideas that kind of uh, come into reality. Sorry, I've just got distracted by some of the live chat um there's uh comments on dan's lack of facial hair <laughs> coming through I, it's, a, it's a point Apparently. of controversy in, in the household because i've been working in intensive care one day a week and because you have to obviously the pp i have to shave so i have to shave the night before i go to work so that's why i've got rid of the beard it's horrible my wife hates it i hate it i feel like a <laughs> i feel like a 14 year old boy it's, it's going to be about weeks. Yeah, that your identity as a man is not in your beard. It's okay. <laughs> it's, it's not really, I hope some reassurance to our very conversation. I think might help you. My kids really? cry. My, oh. my kids cry. They, they do. They're like, they're like uh, who's know, this man? Yeah, who is this boy? <laughs> <laughs> what have you done with our dad? Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Talking about identity. Yeah, there we go. Um, so sorry, that kind of derailed my, my train of thought. <laughs> I'll get back on some oh. questions. <laughs> um, so okay, so we've got some so there's the sort of conflation between the two in society at large. I, I guess it's bringing it around to although feel free to discuss further if, if there's more on that, but just being, bringing it around to the sort of Christianity aspect. What, where does, where does the Bible fit on this? I mean, obviously we've got the passage in Genesis, he made man or humans and then male and female, he made them. Um, and we've got that sort of, uh, what did you call it? die? I, I, I'd, I'd usually use I, the word binary. What was it? Oh yeah, same thing. Di yeah, it's maybe binary is a better word. All right. Um, <laughs> dimorphic. Yeah. That was the one. Um, but then Jesus sort of reaffirms that later on. When, it, but it more sort of talking about seems to be talking about marriage, or this generally comes up in the marriage conversation. Um, is that the only thing we have? And is that in your sort of way that you're supporting people? Is that uh, uh, where you would go to as the view for a Christian idea of, of gender and, and sex? I think so. Maybe maybe a step back from that, just as the biblical idea that we are whole persons and we're embodied persons, so that our bodies are important. That's, you know, sort of a, yeah. a biblical principle, which I think is there in Genesis 1. Um, it, well, it's all over. It's, it's actually one of those things in the Bible that is so assumed that it's not explicitly stated, mm. but it's very clear that your body is part of you. So it's not that the real you dwells inside of your body and is no waiting for freedom for whatever. Actually, it's your body is part of the real you. And that, so that's a very important part of a start of a Christian response. So our bodies are gifts from God to us. They're good gifts and they're therefore to be listened to. They teach us. They God speaks to us through our body in a sense. 
which radically contrasts with a secular view, because if you uh, kind of take a, a non-theistic evolutionary perspective, so we developed through evolution and there's no God involved, then actually we only, our bodies only in this form by random chance, just happens that through a load of random genetic mutations, our bodies ended up this way, just happens that this is where our, the body's not important, actually. It's nothing, mm. it's no authority, it's no reason to listen to what it might be, the, the direction in which it might be uh, pointing us and uh, sending us. The Christian view is very different, that the body is a good gift from God, a good thing from God to be listened to, to be valued, all that stuff. As so that, that helps, that tells us biological sex is important in a biblical kind of picture. I think Genesis 1 is where I start, although actually I, I actually start a few steps back, which is one of the things I start with this is, and what I care about the subject, I guess, is we start actually with the realisation that for some people, this is a complex and a painful thing. And so actually a Christian response starts from recognising God is on the side of those who are brokenhearted, who are suffering, God cares about suffering. And that's where a Christian response starts, actually, about what I call a heart response. That we don't jump to, actually, God says this, and therefore get on with that. This is how God says to live. Why aren't you doing that? What's the big deal? We recognize, actually, you are, at very least, asking big questions, find it difficult. At the worst, experiencing some of the, what can be very acute and debilitating pain of gender dysphoria. We want to love you, support you, recognize your pain, and bring the compassion of God to you. So it starts there. I don't like doing the other bit without saying that, because actually around the Christian response includes that. But I think Genesis 1 is important. And particularly the fact we're created, Genesis 1 tells us, in the image of God, this wonderful, amazing thing, and something unique about us. We in some way resemble God, and that makes us as humans unique and of incredible value. And then placed parallel to that, we're told we're created male and female. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so there's something, I think, about the idea the image of God is given to us by God, and also our identities as male and female are given to us by God. I, I think yeah. that parallel is there and is deliberate, is important, which means being male or female, being a man or woman, isn't a performance we have to uh, act out, isn't a status we have to earn, it's something we're given, we receive from God in our bodies. And that actually is not kind of constrictive and uh, harmful, as culture would often say, actually that's freeing and life-giving. Because I'm a man, because God says I'm a man, that means I don't have to attain to masculinity. I don't have to uh, try and uh, do certain things to make sure I uphold my manhood. I can like the things I like. I can have the preferences and personality I have without that affecting who I am. So actually, I think it's this very different view that our sex identity is given to us. It's a good gift from God to us. It's solid, static, stable, and that frees us to be how we are. I talk about knowing who we are as men or women, identity given by God frees us to be how we are with the personality kind of preferences that we have. So I think Genesis 1 is absolutely key in that. And I think um, you're right, when Jesus harks back to or explicitly refers back to Genesis 127 in Mark 10 in Matthew 19, he is affirming that sex binary, men are created, men and female, it's a good given gift. Um, he is doing that in the context of talking about marriage, but in the process of doing that, he affirms the reality of that. So that is, they are certainly, yeah, key things for a biblical view of personhood, what it means to be a human, and also our, our sex to nature within that. Go on, Dan. I'll say, so when, when you say, so even then, this is when it gets so complicated. So, so when you're saying, um, uh, you, am I correct in assuming your understanding of sex and gender is synonymous? So there, so, uh, because when, you, when you're saying like a man, then, or, 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 or a woman, 
Like, do you mean this is where it gets fun because they say, yes, you, yeah, yeah. Are you assuming that, that a man refers to a male and a woman refers to a female? Are you using that as gen to describe gender, or, or do you just count that as synonymous with sex? It's a really good question because man and woman particularly get used on both sides of sex and gender. I I think some people generally have the experience, and I had a measure as a child, I said that actually how they feel themselves to be inside doesn't match up with their body says. And so I, and what I don't want us to do is say there's no reality to that incongruence people can experience and to the reality of gender dysphoria and the pain that can cause. And that's a helpful thing Christians have done or assumed if people aren't really feeling this or they're just choosing this. So I think it's perfectly possible to have a, a genuine experience that inside you feel yourself to be different to how your body is. The question becomes not about how we experience ourselves to be, but we might say ontologically in the core of our being and our essence who are we who does god say we are i do think there that yes it's so i, I don't think it's possible in a biblical view to be a woman trapped in a man's body say because that's to say ontologically there's something that is a woman mm. inside a ontological body a, a being body and that doesn't fit with the biblical picture because we are united holistic people we are not something trapped in a body our body is a core part of who we are so <clears throat> It's so nuanced. You want to recognize for some people that isn't their experience, but actually I, I think that that experience is genuine when there's a disconnect. But I don't think that's evidence that we have something different in us, which can be given by God to be in conflict or designed to be in conflict. If that made some sense. Yeah, it's quite helpful. Just on that, on that point, there's a question that came in that kind of connects. So there's this sort of, uh, what about people who are born with, um, both genitalia has God given them dual gender, and what what about their body um, yeah. in that in that sense? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad someone's asked that because that reality, what we call intersex, is like the complication to this we haven't brought up, which we we should really. So, just to quickly say, so intersex conditions are where there is some level of variation in someone's body in various different ways from the normal uh, pattern expected for either a male or a female. And there's a, a large number of different insects conditions or um, differences in sex, sexual development, DSDs, the vast majority of which are small variations on the normal pattern of male and female. And so it's usually still very clear whether the individual is male or female. And the vast majority of people with insects conditions recognize themselves as male or female, live in that way. And I'm very happy with that. I want to be recognized as male or female, but with a DSD. There is then a very, very small number. I, mean, I think that is 99% of DSDs kind of falls in that camp. There's then a very small number of people who in various ways can have ambiguous um, biological sex. That can be literally in the things that we would externally see as uh, marking sex in terms of secondary sex characteristics and genitalia. That can be that there is a blend or a mixture of both present. It can be that there's a difference between the external uh, secondary sex characteristics and genitalia and the internal of chromosomes and gonads. And I think in the in the very rare cases where there is genuinely um, biological uh, uh, phenomenon from both kind of patterns, normal but from male or female, I think it is fair and fine to say these people are a blend of the two or are both male and female. That's just the reality based on how we define these things. The question becomes, how do we think about that theologically? And I do feel, having kind of wrestled with this, I do think that the best explanation of that is that all of us in different ways experience in our body the fact that there are some things that are in this world that shouldn't be. What a Christian view would say, the result of the fall of sin and rebellion against God entering the world has harmed the physical creation. And all of us experience that in, our, in the world around us, in our bodies, in our minds. And it seems to me one expression of that 
is the occurrence of uh, DSDs in some people's bodies. <clears throat> people sometimes are very reluctant to say that or very uh, unhappy with people saying that because it's deemed to be just kind of hurtful or offensive or just kind of, kind of to devalidate people. But what I always want to affirm is it doesn't. My, my body is broken. There are parts of my body that don't work as they should do. There's all manner of parts of me that are broken and don't work as they should do, in a sense. Hmm. There's nothing shameful about that. That's a universal human experience. And we, we all recognize that about some things. And it doesn't at all change the, the dignity, the, the, the kind of um, worth that people have, the, their right to honor and life and all this kind of stuff. But I think theologically, that's how we explain the reality that there's this plan and design of male and female in Genesis 1, which are two separate things. But on very rare occasions, we do find the two together. Theologically, in a Christian worldview, that's how we can explain that that is the fact. It's also worth adding that there, there's no third sex. There are only two sexes. So either someone, you have the, as I said, the biological um, um, sort of pattern to uh, organization to produce small gametes or little or small gametes there's no there's not a third sex so some people like yeah. to put intersex into this third you know use it as this claim that actually um there's a there's a third sex but there's no uh, in in mammals there is no there's no third sex there is male yeah. and there is female and then there is uh like you said in very rare cases i think it's i think even like 99.8 percent um you know it's very clear that someone is either a, a male or female even if there might be am ambiguous genitalia um we don't we, there's no evidence that someone can you can have someone uh, produce both gametes uh, at different times uh it might be that some people can't produce any um for for, for, for certain reasons but there's certainly um in, in most cases it, it's it's self-evident what what someone's sex would sex would be um so I know a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people will use intersex as this kind of, and I think intersex people get quite frustrated by this as well as kind of being used as this battering ram to support claims that actually don't have the best interest of, I think, the intersex community in mind, but are using it as a, as a kind of political tool um, to, to justify certain, um, you know, um, philosophical claims. Yeah, spot on, yeah. Sort of um, linking into one of the questions in the chat, but also something that kind of builds on this. So we've got two sexes. We're kind of that's that's the medical consensus. Gender has started to become a little bit more confused, and we've got different. But then we've also got gender roles. <laughs> um, and can I, I just oh. can I just add one thing? Yeah, go on. So so it's so historically so so gender. Uh, sort of again, roughly sort of over 99% of the time corresponds to sex in the sense that people who are are male tend to have male typical behaviors, things that we associate with males. Females, so uh, 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 who are uh, by sex females, tend to have on average female typical behaviors. And this is, this is, this is not controversial. I'm not saying anything there, that there are, there are male typical, typical behaviors and female typical behaviors. It's not to say that if uh, a female has uh, that shares some that prefers certain um, behave has certain behaviors that tend to be uh, associated with males that they are male it's just that there is a broad sort of along a bell curve but it tends to be that there is a strong um, there is a strong relationship between sex and gender um, and so we, you know so we and that's where again again it gets complicated um, but they are you know in terms of most people who are male will have male typical behaviors, uh, mm. etc. 
so I think just to just to clarify that on on the conversation when we it'd be interesting to talk about gender roles on that on that point like with the typical behaviors I, I think we'd need a whole nother stream to talk about the sort of complementarian egalitarianism so we'll probably <laughs> move away from that conversation at this point that is an important conversation to have and we'll try and have that at some point on this channel um but it was interesting you made the point that part of your journey was coming to the realization that whatever you do is masculine because you are male hmm. and i'd be interested to sort of was there a process or was that a sudden realization um because that seems to be quite kind of controversial <laughs> that um how, how much of what we know to be male and this male typical behavior is because of society and i imagine it's a bit of this environment which comes first <laughs> behavior environment but i'll just be wondering your your personal experience with that what what led you to that realization and what made that so clear to you yeah it was a process an odd process so so the background context was i was doing my ma at king's college london um in biblical studies and my master's research was on um masculinity one peter and look at uh, gender in the ancient world to be to be a man your body did help you it projected you towards being a man but actually to really attain to being a real man there were certain things you had to do in the ancient world and in the ancient world gender is a scale with masculinity on one end femininity on the other end and masculinity is about being uh, those who master other people or about having control control of other people and control of yourself and then to be under the control of other people or to be uh, to be out of control yourself to not be self-controlled is to be feminine and you kind of move on a sliding scale based on that so a slave in the ancient world is inherently feminized because they are under the authority of someone else uh, a paterfamilias the guy at the top of the family who owns slaves and rules over women wife daughters different people is the most masculine in the world of the world at the time and so there there although they recognized there are many women in biology actually what they cared more about was where you were on that kind of pecking order of masculine feminine real man will or uh, or not kind of thing and so i was kind of researching that and i was looking at one peter and how does that fit in and one peter engages in that in various ways or or can be evaluated in various ways because one peter is written to people experiencing persecution for their faith, their faith in Jesus. And so in one way, they're being harmed by other people. They're being moved down the scale to the feminine end because other people are acting on them and, and are controlling them, but they are passive in that. But then there are things in 1 Peter about husbands leading their wives, about slave masters and slaves, and so you get some actually, some appropriation of or alignment with some of the ideas actually. Uh, although it's done in a very different way. So the way that Christian slave masters meant to look after their slaves, and the way that Christian husbands love their wives is radically different to how it would have been in general in the Greco-Roman world. And you get to all these basic different interplays. And so I kind of was working on this. And I got to the point, I did my research, I passed my master's, and I was recommended that I sort of publish it. So I did it into a journal article, submitted it to a journal. And while it was with the journal, I was doing some other work on trans. And through studying and thinking about Genesis 127, I did come to what was almost a blinding realization of, wait a minute, no, this whole thing is given to us. I am a man. It was very personal at that point. It was, I am a man because God says I'm a man. He has said to me in my body that I am a man. That is who I am. And that means actually I, there is no sliding scale for me to move on. It's not that actually I'm not a real man. And, you know, my friend over there who likes, you know, steak and knife throwing or <laughs> paintball, whatever about me, you know, rugby and stuff, he's the real man. 
And because I'm over here preferring to having afternoon tea with the girls and watch Downton Abbey, I'm not realizing, no, no, actually, we are male or female based on what God says to us. And that doesn't change with what we do. Um, and that was then interesting because then I began to realize, in which case, actually, my kind of gendered reading of one Peter, where I was saying Peter may have been engaging this kind of ear idea, just isn't true. I thought, actually, you know, Peter is going to know what the Bible teaches, that these things are solid and static. And actually, the Christian view radically undermines what, um, what the ancient world says, which was a funny situation because I suddenly went from really hoping my journal article might get published to really hoping they'd reject it because I suddenly didn't want to have that in print because I didn't agree <laughs> with it. It's kind of a, a funny, so I was quite glad when they rejected it, partly because they said, we're just not sure Peter really cares about masculinity. He's really kind of thinking about that. So, yeah, so it was um, a, a journey, but then a sudden realisation. And very funny that it was a real odd combination of a very geeky academic thing and actually very real life experience that mm. then brought that freedom. And I think there was, other, I was having counsel at the time for various things. And one thing that came up in there was my identity, my discomfort, my masculinity, it all kind of came together nicely. And um, was, yeah, it has been genuinely liberating. Uh, and I think I had, hadn't been aware how, how uncomfortable I was with masculinity, how much I didn't feel like a real man and how much I guess I felt ashamed of or uncomfortable with my personality likes and dislikes and yeah, have, I think found a huge level of freedom from that, which is why I talk about the biblical position actually being so freeing rather than being uh, uh, constrictive or um, controlling in that way. So, uh, so, so kind of on that then, in, in the sort of environment, and you kind of touched on the sort of extreme stereotypes of what makes a man a man and, what, uh, uh, and whatnot, how, how do you see that playing out in the church? I'd be interested in your sort of interactions in the church. Yeah. Like <laughs> you, you, you tell your church friends you've been watching Downton Abbey on your own <laughs> and really enjoyed it. Like how, how do how have you found the sort of interactions on that regard? Because there is a general trend within certain parts of Christianity of what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman and their roles mm -hmm. within those uh within that and I, i've even seen unfortunately online certain christians um judge a teacher based on how they uh express themselves on at the, at the front and and generally it's uh they look too feminine to be a bible teacher or they they speak to so what's been your experience has that been a positive or anything it can't have been too bad as you help lead a church but i'd just be interested in or maybe that's an assumption on my part. I'll be I'll be really interested in, in in sort of your interaction in the church on this. Yeah, yeah. I think I've been fortunate that my experience has been yeah fairly okay and not too painful, not too difficult. I mean, in some way, for, for all of my discomfort with masculinity, I was also a relatively confident person. So I was very open about my deep love of Downton Abbey, for example. And as a preacher, <laughs> as a preacher, these things tend to make it into you know, the church yep. knows odd things about you. Um, so they all know <laughs> I love Downton Abbey and stuff, you know. So. And in a sense, I, I so didn't fit the mould for a guy that it was quite hard to, to hide. So I didn't particularly bother. Mm. Um, and I don't, I, I'm not conscious of ever having had too much direct pushback on that. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, certainly, both in Christian context and non-Christian context, I was certainly teased a lot for that, for my kind of gender non-conforming behaviour. And it is interesting, we'll, we'll probably come back to it, you mentioned it, the kind of link between that and sexuality, and people used to teaser based on that. I had friends who used to uh, say that I'd grow up to be a gay politician because I was quite opinionated. Uh, and mm -hmm. also I was kind of a bit camp and flamboyant, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, 
which wasn't it wasn't the nice thing. It didn't help me as a teenager. Now I'd find that quite mm. funny, but that's a kind of different thing. I think I think as I've as I shared my realization at all here, I've had wonderfully positive responses um, of people feeling similar kind of freedom to me. I, I spoke on um, on transgender at a youth festival a few years ago, and one of the points I made was actually how so many of us actually. Uh, because of stereotypes and expectations of what it means to be a man or woman, which just aren't in the Bible, are left feeling like lesser men or lesser women. Mm-hmm. And I think the best, now it's talked about a thousand or so people, but the best, the reason it made it worth going was I heard from one of the prayer ministry team afterwards that they'd uh, talked to and prayed with a, a young guy, a teenage guy, who had been asking serious questions about his gender identity, had been feeling deeply uncomfortable with it, and had just felt such freedom to realise he's a man because God says he's a man. He's spoken that to mm-hmm. him in his body. And it doesn't matter the fact that a lot of his likes and dislikes or personality aren't like his friends. And stories like that are wonderful. You think actually that's, that's God bringing liberty to someone. And, and I say that, and I also want to quickly then always point out, I do know that doesn't solve the problem of gender dysphoria for everyone. It's not the case that if we recognize stereotypes, everybody who's trans, everybody gender dysphoria would feel fine. That is not the case. And I wouldn't miss her to be saying that. But for many of us who maybe have lower level discomfort with our gender, it does bring a lot of help. Another, just a quick, another one I found really encouraging is a guy in my church who's quite kind of, quite a lad's lad kind of guy. And he's got a son who very much is, who's an 18-year-old rugby player. But he said to me, his, his son had been at a party uh, with me the night before. And he said to me that he'd been saying, his son had been saying something about me. I don't know what. And he was so glad, he said, that I model a different form of masculinity to his son. I thought, I love that. Yeah, she's so good that we have different forms of, or different expressions of what it means to be a man around that brings freedom and liberty to people. So my experience has been good and the responses to the kind of perspective I put out has been good. But I'm so aware, as you say, yeah, in various different ways and very different places in the Christian church, we've not been good on this. We've had just very strong stereotypes, those things which are often true. And as Dan says, they often do uh, align. The reason we think of certain behaviours as masculine or feminine is because statistically speaking, many men mm-hmm. who act that way or do like those things and same for women. But it's easy to go from that to that's how things should be. And that's the, mm. I think, wrong step for a Christian because the Bible doesn't say that. An unhelpful step. And that is done. And that can, yeah, come to, as you were saying, very kind of superficial judgments as the one you kind of exhibited there. And it gets seen in, you know, in events we run, you know, mm-hmm. curry nights for the guys. No, thank you. The, the, the idea of being in a room for the guys eating curry and drinking beer is very uncomfortable. I, would, I wouldn't yeah. go. I actively wouldn't go. Um, and even like single sex things full stop, I always want to challenge churches. I don't say don't do single sex things. I say always think about why you're doing it, whether it's necessary. Because I still don't mm. like particularly being in all male spaces. I don't feel particularly comfortable. Uh, and just, yeah. So I think it's this helpful challenge to churches. Is it purposeful? Uh, and mm. is it helpful? Often it's things we say, jokes we make. And even just, you know, who we have on the stage was a public face of the church, that they are all of a very certain type of masculinity, that's sending a message in the same way of all your leaders and your public faces are married, that sends a message. So I think it's being aware sometimes of the things you might not even realize are ways we're sending messages about what it means to be a man or woman. Hi there, this is Phil Dunkarf. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do uh, subscribe, share the episode and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. 
Enjoy the rest of the show. Dan, have you got a particular question? No, I was just going to, again, this is where the language gets, I, I get, again, I'm not even certain myself in the language, but then, so when you're talking about masculinity, you said, you said there, there are different ways to be masculine. Okay. See, I, see that, that's where I get, conf- I get confused because I'm not, I'm not sure if I agree in the sense that if I think there could be, there are different ways to be a man. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are different. I'm, I'm not. Sh- I'm not persuaded there are different ways to be masculine because I think by masculine we simply mean male typical behaviours, and by femininity we mean female typical behaviours. So, um, and 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 it tends to be that people, in terms of um, sexual preferences, if if someone is of se- same sex attracted, is a little bit more likely to have. Um, opposite opposite um sex preferences in terms of behavior so it's it's likely that you know not all the time because there are obviously exceptions to this but people who are saying if a, a male say male same sex tend to have more uh feminine uh, female female typical behaviors and same sex attracted women tend to not always as a rule tend to have more male typical behaviors and so I, i've always thought of it as yeah there are different ways to be a man different ways to be a woman I think that it's dangerous when we put people in a box there's only one way to be a man and that's an alpha male and there's only one way to be a female and that's this sort of uh uh you know housewife domestic goddess and and when people don't people don't we don't fit into those even myself I don't fit into an alpha male uh you know I like playing football but I also like having baths with candles (laughs) listening to you know to classical music and reading but you know I I I, I, I'll say that and I and I you know and so I, I don't fit into a neat little box even. I think it's it's so dangerous to to like you said to, to put people in these in these boxes. Yeah. But I'm just not sure. Again, it's I'm just so care care about the language. I, I think you're right, and there are different ways to be men. But I'm not sure if there are different ways to be masculine. Even though I think I, I know what you mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I need yeah, to think perfectly, about. perfectly fair critique. Yes, and the language and the conversation is so difficult and. I think I think it's so difficult. I've given up. I think, <laughs> I think it's true. I think there, there is a bit of that. And so you kind of communicate, and you know that people will understand what you mean, or I hope, even though you're absolutely yeah. right. There's inconsistency. I think it's almost impossible to be consistent in how you use the language in this conversation, unless you kind of start the conversation by agreeing on your definitions of different things, agreeing you've got terms to refer to the different things you might need to refer to, and then do it. I think yeah. you're right. I guess my one of the reasons I like using the language of masculinity there is. I kind of want to make the point of it, the, the, the sex nature of things flows from my sex body, not from culture. So, so yes. I do agree that actually, generally speaking, by masculinity, we mean what is commonly true of men, which I do agree does flow from biological sex often, although of course also often what we say is kind of gender roles are very different across cultures and even preferences are very different. And you know, it's fascinating as to how is it that in one culture, a vast majority of men like blue and another culture would be pink because it would have been a hundred years ago in this country. That's, that is fascinating kind of how that's, how it develops in us. But I think, yeah, maybe, maybe my, my language wasn't this clever, but maybe I could try and be clever. I'm trying to project the fact that actually I do think there's a sense in which everything I do is masculine because it comes from me yeah. as a, as a man, but you're absolutely yeah. right. It's not how we tend to, tend to use the language and so maybe actually I should get more comfortable saying that in the views of culture I'm quite feminine and not very masculine maybe actually it's healthy for me to 
that because that also is pushing back on this idea that we need to adhere to a certain uh set of standards from culture to be to be a man or a woman yeah it's it, i mean how how do you um because for me I, ma- I imagine you have these conversations far more more than me but how do you have conversations where people just fundamentally disagree with the terms you so even when you say gender yeah. you know someone else means something completely different to that but let's say you're talking to someone they believe there are you know uh, an infinite you know if it is this infinite spectrum um you could be on anywhere on there have you found a you know what is there where, where's the common ground or is there any well sometimes it is just we have to have the conversation of what do we mean by gender uh and that, that actually i find interesting interesting and that that often gets you down some foundational stuff anyway so that is kind of a helpful thing i guess it depends who you're talking to what type of conversation you know some conversations actually it's beneficial to try and use the kind of language they would use in order to, it was so that language isn't a stumbling block actually it's talk about the more important things because language can get in the way and i don't want to yeah miss out having a good conversation a beneficial conversation because i've decided to be picky on getting language right rather than engaging and i think yeah i mean i haven't found a lot of times where we can't communicate it doesn't tend to up on that kind of level maybe that is because you do discern a lot of meaning obviously from context and stuff there are ways of making it clear what you mean so i often use things like experienced gender which i think indicates the fact i'm talking about how you feel inside not what culture says there are there are ways and phrases you can use i think to get around it so yeah i haven't had a lot of problems with it but but agree it could become a problem and sometimes i think we just ask sometimes it's trying to be clever about the way we communicate so it both facilitates communication but also facilitates a, a worthwhile conversation with the communication what with um you know you said you've had interesting conversations with young people and obviously they're the ones who are are, are most likely to be bombarded with um you know ideas of, of sex and, and gender perhaps that uh challenge the um sort of more um you know christian traditional view of of, of those things um how 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 well do you think the church is is uh doing in this in this um this sort of area like um do do we need to talk about it more in church like um you know especially among young young people um like uh, and i'll be interested in in terms of living out as well are there sort of resources for churches to should be should it be something you talk about on a sunday or yeah i think yeah i think we do need to make more i think especially young people just say i i wouldn't claim to yeah I, I tend still to think tend to think of myself as just out of the youth group, and that's so not true anymore. Um, so I'm not, I'm not very so down with the kids. I don't talk to. Well, it is. It's when no, it's with the awkward moments where you go to a prayer meeting about the youth team, thinking all the guys who just left, and see there's two generations of youth in the meeting. Since anyway, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but also it's it's also not not just you. I think all the church. I think I think the things need to do are take the steps back and talk about the foundation. So. We can talk about it directly, explicitly. I think we should. I always think the church should be talking about what the world is talking about, both because people are likely to want to listen. If it fits with what they're seeing on social media, reading the paper, hearing on the news, hearing on the train, the commute to work, people pipe up and think, oh, the Bible might be relevant to my life. Let's let's listen this Sunday. So I think we should go directly for it. And I think, you know, if six days of the week our people are being discipled by social media and all manner of different things, we need to talk about the things that six days a week they're being told about. So I do think go directly for it. 
but also we need to do what is sometimes even more effective, which is go to the foundation. So what are the things that lay behind a, a kind of secular perspective on this? The kind of things are young people particularly being told and believing? Why is it so convincing to them? And talk about those things. So I'm thoroughly convinced that one of the most important things the church talk about at the moment is identity. And not just go on as we rightly do, at the fact that identity should be in Christ and not anything else, but help people understand where else and how else we make identity. That, you know, identity formation, our, our forming of our sense of who we are, happens all the time. We all have a sense of identity. We don't all think about how we get that. And it's one of these things I think we need to unmask and make clear to people so they realise what's going on both in their own formation of identity and in other people's formation of identity or what other people say about identity. So that when our young person is constantly being sold the narrative of who you are inside is who you really are, if that's how you feel you are, that's who you are. It doesn't matter what mum and dad say. It doesn't matter what your church says. It doesn't matter even what your body says. Who you are inside, they instantly think, does that work? Is that true? Is that, is that good news to me? Because otherwise you don't realise it's happening. Especially when you stop and think, would we say to everyone that who you are inside is who you are? Would we say to the guy who wants to run around the street murdering people because he's a bloodthirsty murderer? That's who he feels himself to be. It's his deepest desire. He, he believes that's where he'll find true fulfillment. Would we say, mate, that's you. Be you. You do you. And we're going to, and don't worry what we say. Don't worry what tradition or religion or the law says. This is you. We would never say that. It's helping people to realize that's the same thing that's happening. Maybe that's not who we are. What if there was a way to find who we are that would be life-giving, would never change, be solid and static and stable? We wouldn't have to perform to try and attain to it. We wouldn't have to keep up and act. We wouldn't have the pressure of saying, well, which of these feelings do I like most? I look inside myself, but I'm not quite sure who I am. That's, that's what we see among young people often. Like there was a great Guardian article a little while ago about non-binary identities. And really sad cases of young people, 16, 17, saying I'm identifying as non-binary, but I've not yet told my parents because I'm not really sure this is who I am. And it might change later. I don't want to confuse things and tell them now. What pressure as a 16, 17 year old to, to find who you are, that, that elusive thing inside, and to not even feel comfortable to tell your closest people, your family, how you're experiencing yourself, what life is like, because you're worried it might change later. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could know who you were in a way it won't change, that won't uh, kind of bail on you, won't be a, an issue, but it's wonderful, liberating and life-giving. So identity particularly, you know, individualism, different kind of things, the importance of the body is a big one, the goodness of physical creation. We just live in a world that doesn't like the physical creation. That's a result of the kind of non-theistic evolution thing. It's a result of the digital world. Lockdown, I think, hasn't helped. Life has become virtual. You know, no one, not many people know if I still have a body below this because all <laughs> we're seeing is this. I, I am almost a disembodied being now, actually, because almost all the contact people have with me is through something digital. Yet again, the physical world has been kind of um, pushed to one side and gone down in our estimation even more. Um, and we need to show people the goodness of the physical world. And actually, if you have young people who recognize the physical world and their physical bodies are good gifts from God, you've got a long way to help them realize actually your given sex is a gift from God. It, it, it's interesting. It's almost like a, um, a new kind of Gnosticism um, that, you know, it's, it's interesting that we have these heresies, you know, church her heresies, and then we see them coming back again. You know, it's a thing about, you know, the body is, is bad. It's about you know what's inside is is good. That's that's um, you know we should, we, we should, it's kind of disparaging of, of of the body. And it's almost like as Christians we need to be more 
body positive like more well, positive about you are a physical being you have a body that's you know you experience the world through a sexed body like yeah. everything you do is in a sexed body um it, it's um yeah it's 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 um it's, odd. it's I so feel true, like yeah. Go on, character. So true, yeah. I think, yeah, one of the things that has happened in the last, I don't know how long, but certainly it was the case, or is the case, that we just become less and less positive about the body in the church. I think one of the reasons more recently, I'm sure it predates this, is the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution was so much kind of, let's just do whatever we like with our bodies. Let's just embrace them, go with them. And I I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if we wrongly downplayed the body at that point. Actually, bodily pleasure isn't that important. You don't need to have sex in any way you want to. Well, actually, we should have played up the body. The body is so important. You should be really careful you have sex with. I, I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if that's one of the places we went in the wrong direction and one of the many reasons why yeah, the body isn't prominent in our anthropology or understanding of humanity at the moment. That's good. I thought I mean, even just re- oh, sorry, you, you go for it. No, I was just going to say with the questions, there's quite a few questions on there. I didn't know whether we uh, wanted to, to go through uh, some of the, the more challenging ones for Andrew, you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll get we'll get to a couple of them. I was just <laughs> going to emphasize that that in so many ways the the and I found that in Nancy Pierce's book Love Thy Body, mm-hmm. that emphasis on the body is just so important with even regards to resurrection and the hope of new creation. That our hope is not that we go off to some plane of existence as a soul, but we long to be re-embodied. Um, and things will be different, as we are told, <laughs> regarding this topic. But uh, yeah, it's, it's still something that our body is important and we long for that. The body where sin isn't a part of it <laughs> and uh, the corruption of, of death and all, all that. Um, so yeah, just wanted to emphasize at that point. Um, I'm lo- looking at a couple of things. There's a couple uh, pastoral sides to it but there's one just about language which i'll go to first and then we'll go to this sort of more pastoral like how do we talk about this with someone kind of like what dan dan said about with kids but um this this question came up on on periscope i think it's the first question we've had from periscope um has andrew been following the debate of labels in the evangelical world around ssa versus gay christian we talked a little bit about this with Anne, um but i guess as as it's come up we'll, we'll start there because I, I don't know if that's a, a long answer for me it's a special <laughs> one but um I'll, yeah. I'll be interested where, where are you on that yeah it's hard not to follow it if you're if you're publicly gay or same sex attracted as a christian and talking about it you get dragged into it i don't follow it so, <laughs> you like it or uh, not yeah having said that actually in one sense i don't actively follow it i i think it's a valid conversation i think it's important in some ways it's in a sense so much being said and, and not one of the most important i don't engage with it in great detail um so yes i'm aware of it my are you, you know, I was, it's just illustrated there. I deliberately refer to myself as same sex attracted or gay, as in I use that phrase, um, because I don't have strong, strong feelings either side. I mm. know the, the reasons for views on both sides. I can see genuine wisdom in both sides. And I just don't think there's an easy answer. It's not a term without problems. I think often, one thing I'll say, often people, you know, it's quite divisive and they're quite strong views. Often that does correct people's background. People who've grown up in a church context, they found themselves to experience attraction to some of the same sex, often are very comfortable with the language of being gay. Often people who've been uh, non- not followers of Jesus, have been in gay relationships with different things, have come out of that kind of way of living, are very uncomfortable with it, 
And I think that's not surprising. And sometimes I worry we're ungracious to each other. And actually the reason we feel so strong about different language is we come from different backgrounds and that language, although, you know, a dictionary definition means the same things to us, carries different baggage, which is one of the reasons I'm happy to use both. And I don't go too strongly on which one it should be used because I'm sensitive to the fact there are good reasons because of people's stories that they're, they're using both. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's conversation should, should continue, but also I never want it to distract from other and more important conversations, which sometimes it probably does, sadly. And I think that that kind of reminds me of a conversation we had with Claire uh, Williams about uh, critical race theory and things like that, is oftentimes you can get caught up in the debate around words and their definitions before you even deal with the hurt and injustice and the yeah, things that are yeah, actually yeah. happening on the ground. And so while it, yeah, or like you said, while it's important in one sense, it's it's helpful to to bring it around to the pro level of priorities maybe yeah, uh, yeah. Is, is important and, and priorities get argued over as well so it's, it's a bit of a difficult <laughs> yeah. one to get that right um so one of the other questions came up that i think is probably where we're headed anyway and one of the questions i wanted to ask is how how church can be inclusive in the sense that uh, and i asked this to Anne as well so in the sense that we have this biblical view that we think is good news for all, but requires some form of, um, I guess, submission, sacrifice to potentially go a direction that you're, that goes against your feelings, your how you feel about yourself, and even potentially to the, well, it should change the way you identify yourself. How do you, how do we start that process? And I guess let's let's have a have this as it's a good sort of grounding point of, of reality there are people who are planning to transition uh and someone comes to you and says oh, i'm looking to to transition what sort of advice do you have for the friend um and then and then maybe sort of just as a uh, on another level if there is a different way of going about it how as a pastor do you do you handle this mm -hmm. um so that just if we go with on, on the level of a friend first that would be a good way of sort of starting the conversation yeah yeah a bit of overlap in both ways actually i mean it's by far one of the hardest questions that's one of the things that that, that the reality of transition what faithfulness in christian discipleship looks like for someone who's got gender for it to the extent they want to transition is a very difficult question that's one thing to say that any answers one gives mustn't be quick or trite and so i'll try and be careful and considering what i say i love and this is totally next from someone else i think from mark yarhouse a christian psychologist he says this great thing if someone comes to you with the kind of statement of i'm planning to transition what do you think or just any i'm transition the first thing is actually something he puts in a lovely way like you know, i feel like i'm coming in at chapter 10 of your story can we sit down and just talk about chapters one to 10 actually? And that, that is the first thing I do, even if I knew them quite well, actually, I would want to be going back again to just helping me to understand their story, how they reached this point, why do they want to transition? Because it's not a, it's not something people take lightly uh, or it shouldn't be. Usually, you know, it's, it's such a, a big thing has long lasting, lifelong impacts is painful, difficult in many different ways. It's unlikely to be a quick knee jerk reaction. It's likely that it's because life doesn't feel possible to be lived in the way they're currently living it. So I'd want to connect with and legitimize and sympathize and bring, uh, seek to bring comfort through friendship to whatever the pain, the struggle, the distress that is lying behind the desire to transition. That'd be my first priority. My first priority would be, how do I make you know that I still love you? 
how do I make you know that I want to care and 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 understand your experience? I don't want to bring trite answers to you. I want to understand and respond well. So all of that would come first, I think. If it's someone who is a follower of Jesus, that that helps in the sense that we're starting from the same um, from the same starting point. Actually, of our mm. desire is to be faithful to Jesus. Our belief is that Jesus wants what's best for us. Surely, a God who would let His one and only Son die for us. Surely, He wants the best for us. I think it would be if we agreed on that, would it help us to look together at what God says to us in his word? So it wouldn't be, well, I think God says this, so I don't think you should do that. It would be, we both believe this. We believe God's giving us his word to help us and guide us. Would it be helpful if we spent time looking at that together, exploring that together? And part of what I'm doing there is allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work, actually. I don't, Mm -hmm. as a friend or a pastor, there is a role for us to, encourage exhort each other to bring the truth of god to each other but of course there's stuff we can't do <laughs> only the holy spirit as god coming to living inside of us can change our heart can sustain us to think maybe i won't do this thing that feels so natural i'm gonna endure this thing it feels so difficult it's actually one of the reasons i want to read the bible together would be i'd be trusting that god will do his work the work of god through the word of god as we talk so it'd be that and it would be looking at the word of god it would also be talking about some stuff about identity actually because um how do we find who we are? Those kind of questions is helping talk around those. And then I'd also want to get to a place, and obviously this likely isn't in one conversation, of saying, well, what does God offer to help you? If actually, if they came to the point then of thinking, I'm not sure this is the right thing the word of God wants me to do, but then all the pain and the difficulty, the distress that causes the desire transition we've already found earlier in our conversations, that's still there. What do we do with that? So I don't want to leave my friend thinking, man, I'm going to try and do this because Jesus tells me uh, to do it this way. But that still sounds pretty unbearable. I want to go, actually, what does it look like to live with suffering? What's it look like to live in a world where some things are not as they should be, where, where all of us in some ways experience some sort of disconnect between uh, how things should be and how they're not? What resources does the Bible give me? How do I be a friend who helps you if actually waking up tomorrow and dressing as a guy, not as a girl, is going to be really painful for you? How can I be a support in that? So it's this thing of trying to give like a really um, a holistic perspective, not just a, ah, oh, wait a minute, haven't you read Genesis 1 and Matthew 19? <laughs> and there, you know, I mean, and that's that's really my approach to trans, which I've talked about, but really, for me, it's always a heart response. What's, just expressing love and compassion. It's always a head response. What's the word of God say? What's the, the, the rational and the biblical thing? But then also a hope response. How is there still hope to be brought? And I think that structure is so helpful. I find it so helpful because whether I'm teaching, whether I'm talking to someone, it gives a journey to follow. And so I think for a pastor, the conversation would be largely the same. Yeah. I guess a pastor, if it's, if it's, if someone's put themselves under that pastor in the sense that they've chosen to be a member of that church and said they'll follow the spiritual leadership of that pastor and the, the team of pastors, then there's a little bit more of a role for that pastor to speak into um, the life, really, but we're, uh, a writing invitation for them to do that but ideally we want to you know woo people as christ has wooed us rather than you know dragging us or whatever um and journey with them because i think bringing things just clear-cut doesn't doesn't honor people's realities and journeys and also doesn't tend to work yeah there's there's a lot that's really helpful in that so thanks and uh yeah just to highlight that so uh rebecca's found that very helpful um I had a question in, in mind just as a follow-up, and actually it's from uh, Rebecca following up on that. How 
and I guess the, 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 that journey to in chapter ten was really really significant. I think because that comes in for kind of any level of of person coming into your church. That's a great question to ask. Like, I I don't know you. I I might see certain behaviours about you that may or may not align with the the life that you're claiming to live. I mean, we've all got that let's explore that together i think that's just such a good pastoral question mm. on any number of um aspects and and so i just wanted to clarify is there anything different or more detailed that you have if you have someone who's already transitioned made that transition come into the church wanting to know more or already a christian what kind of does that add any more complexity or depth to your mm. to your well, I, I think i think it adds complexity to the situation because potentially the, the cost and life impact of them seeking to faithfully follow Jesus is even bigger. It can have a bigger impact. Um, <clears throat> so there's that. I mean, the conversation would be very similar in the sense of where we come from, I want to get to know you, what you know, has it all been for you? Exploring together the word of God. The, the conversation is different if they're a Christian or not as well, in the sense that they're not a Christian, the, the priority isn't to deal with or talk about or bring their gender into alignment with what jesus says their priority is to reconcile them to christ to bring the good news to them actually and i'd want to use that conversation the opportunity to talk about jesus and to be honest i kind of i don't think i've been directly in this situation but i think if someone who had transitioned came to me as a christian or was saying you know what do you think i should do now i would say, well, I kind of think we shouldn't bother thinking about that, but let's get to know Jesus first. Jesus will have things to say about how you live out your, your biological sex and your gender, as he does to all of us, but there's not much point in listening to him if you're not following him. And to be frank, if you decide that Jesus isn't who he says he is, then what he says doesn't really matter. So let's focus on, is Jesus who he says he is? Did he rise from the dead? And go from there. It's got to be the kind of the foundation of it. And then I think, I think with that case, so a case of... Um, or a situation where someone has transitioned. I think also it's just realizing with all these things, it could be a long, slow journey and not, we, we often want sanctification to be a very quick click the finger process. And I think those of some charismatic backgrounds are particularly guilty of that. And that's just not the way things often work. It'll be a long, slow, gradual process. And also I think things aren't clear cut. And I think just as simple, you know, if they decide actually that reverting to living along with their biological sex is what Jesus is asking of them, it's not clear cut how you do that, all that even looks like. And so I think just being aware, you know, there's such vast complexity actually in that. And again, journeying with them. Uh, none of us are going to come into that conversation knowing what actually it looks, what faithfulness of Jesus looks like in every way. And so journeying, exploring, being patient, um, all of which, yeah, actually are relevant to the first situation, but maybe it's even more so in that situation. That's good stuff. Um yeah, I've, I haven't got too much more to follow up on that. But as you're speaking, I, I'm not. I'm trying to think if I've shared it on here before. I think I have, but it's something I've nicked from a book I was reading on uh, ministering to cultures in on a sh shame context. And there was just quite an interesting diagram of it. And I'm not quite sure if, when it comes to leadership, how it works practically. But it was just quite an interesting thing that, in the West, where we emphasise guilt and innocence, and we really emphasize this sort of moral code that people should behave we end up with put these lines around whether you're in or out and the cross is somewhere in the middle but it's you've you've crossed this line therefore you should behave this way and that behavior is how i 
make sure that you're in or out. And and obviously we've seen recently with massive failings within the church, <laughs> or at least with a, a major apologist and, and all that's sort of out there at the moment, that that line doesn't work as a judgment call. And and there's, there's something um, someone can pretend very well that they're in when, when they're possibly not. And I think something that you're highlighting there is just a really interesting way of changing the dynamic is um, what this guy says is, is a better suggestion is the cross is at the center. Instead of there being a line, it's the direction you're headed. So each individual is, is headed in a direction. Are they headed towards the cross from wherever around the cross they might be? Are they headed towards it or are they headed away from it? Therefore, you've got people whose behavior is perfect but are headed away from the cross. They're just as much of a pastoral concern as someone who's the, the person who's walked through the door, complete atheist or behavior is totally immoral, but is walking towards the cross. Maybe less of a pastoral concern discipleship wise because you know where they're walking towards. Mm-hmm. It's just an interesting way of framing it that I thought as you were talking, I was like, yeah, that kind of that kind of resonates with that, which means that we should end up with a very messy church <laughs> because behavior yeah, yeah, can yeah. be all over the place. Uh, and, I, and I don't know how that works really, is it? <laughs> in that way. But um, yeah, I'd just be interested in what you make of that. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think we don't like it because it's less tangible and more difficult to work with and see. But it is true that the heart is the important thing. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. And, and I, you know, I think it's a very biblical teaching that um, to be, you know, to be grafted and divine, to be following Jesus, to be truly born again, has outward uh, works in our life. There will be evidence of sanctification. But that does a start in the heart. It is a kind of in outward thing. You know, you're, you're the type of tree and therefore you bear the fruit or vice versa yeah. stuff. And so I think, yeah, I think even, even in conversations with people, you can gauge, you know, there may, there may have as of yet been no change of behavior, but I think you can gauge, is there a desire to, is the heart behind this? You know, I mean, an obvious example would be an addiction like pornography, where there might be no change of behavior for a long time. And you can have two very different situations. You can be in one part of a situation and actually seemingly there's no change because actually there's no real desire for change on, on any level. And actually there's a, a tacit agreement. This isn't what Jesus might want, but actually there's no, doesn't seem to be a heart engagement with it. You can be in the same situation over someone who struggles the same amount of time and seems to be uh, not changing their behavior the same amount of length. And actually you see there's genuine uh, contrite heart, there's genuine repentance, there's a desire for change. There's, well, there'll be both. There'll be a desire for it and not for it. We're, we're beings who can very easily desire two things at once, which makes life complicated. But I, do you think, you know, you can have externally identical situations, seemingly identical, but it is where the hearts are. And that's harder to discern, but I think it can be discerned as well, which I think links to what you're saying. Yeah, 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 no, that's, that's helpful. Dan, you got another question? There's another one in the chat, but... No, I use the ones in the chat, it's fine. Cool. So this, this one's going to be interesting. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, so Rebecca's uh, ordained um, and has been was asked to marry a couple um one was transgender so i'll say it for the podcast because they can't read the question one was transgender male to female and one was male how would you respond mm. i mean it was now like a cop out but i would do the same thing i'm coming into chapter 10 of this story let's you know that is absolutely you know what we we mustn't ever do of any possible situation surely but especially things like this is we can so easily think there's a black and white answer here there's a very easy answer here um which is just not the way to, to love and pastor and to deal with people. So it would be 
absolutely talking for a long time and getting to know and building relationship and understanding that. I think, so I think the black and white, I mean, the theological thing would be, I think biblically speaking, marriage is between one man and one woman, a male and a female. And biblically speaking, we are male or female based on our biology, our bodies, how God speaks to us. And we can't change that. And, and whatever we might do on what is, generally speaking, external, and in that sense, cosmetic, the visible stuff to change that, the reality is that we are still of the biological sex that God, uh, that we were, were at birth and that God in that sense has made us to be. So, so I wouldn't believe that could be a, a marriage uh, appropriate in God's eyes. But how I get to that situation, I don't go straight in with that base. I get to know the couple. I that. And it might come to a point actually where I have to say that. And then I want to say that as a, I recognize the, you know, even saying things like I recognize the goodness that there's, there's, you love each other and you want to commit to each other. There's lots of good qualities here, but actually I believe we have to be faithful to God's word. And this is what I believe God's word would say. And, you know, and depending on what exactly the situation is, then it's saying things like, you know, if they're members of the, well, if they're attending your church, it might well be that you, the pastor, for you are able to say, you want to say, we would love you to continue attending us to church, to be in part of our community, to journey with us. We'd love to help continue walking aside you in your journey with Jesus. If actually it's more of a friendship, it's saying, I still want to be your friends. When do you next come over for dinner or whatever it is you do? And so even when sometimes we do have to get to the black and white and bring what we believe biblically is the correct thing and bring that to people, which might be something that's very hard for people to accept. It might be upsetting to people in that sense. We can at least do our very best to show we do love you and we want relationship with you. We want you to be part of, of, of us as a church or whatever it might be. So it's always navigating those things, actually, of how do we both bring the truth of God? And we mustn't compromise on that. But how do we, to the best of our ability, also communicate the heart of God? And sometimes the sad reality is people can't receive those together. And hearing the truth of God sometimes will, uh, and sometimes because of how it's done, it can be our fault how it's done, but sometimes the reality yeah. just of the truth of God on its own will cause people to believe they're not loved, they're not welcome. And that is heartbreaking. And we must pray that God brings those people back and reveals the goodness what he says to them. We don't compromise on the word of God to spare those things. We do everything we can to show the love and maintain relationship when we do have to uh, reach those those points in, in conversations or in pastoral situations. That's really helpful. Uh, lots of good stuff. And I, I think that's the, for me, that's the, probably the, the hardest bit, and I talked to Anna about it last week, was this, specifically in culture at the moment, I don't know if it's always been there, maybe it has, maybe it's just more pronounced with this idea that you, when you affirm someone, you you have to affirm particularly the, um, the sex or sexuality side of things, which is interesting because, as you made connection before, there's certain aspects of people's identities or behaviours that we should never affirm but for some reason with with this side of things it's become elevated to a point you can't disagree without it becoming a personal attack in, in many cases and to say on the one hand i love you you're welcome here but on the other no i can't marry you guys or no you, you, the, the, i know and i think the messy bit would be when you've got someone who's already transitioned and someone who's already married coming into your church wanting to be Christian, that's where pastoral care and helping the church come to terms with actually our church is going to look messy this side of heaven. Yeah. They're, they're trying to walk the cross, but, and then it becomes a massive journey of 
do they break up detransition all that stuff is messy and hard and and we we don't want to rush that and i think your emphasis on the journeys is so important um but this this concept that we have to wrestle with as christians how can i share the love of christ with you while not affirming everything about you how can i make that clear in a way that doesn't belittle you compare compare you with murderers i mean that's that's the thing is that yeah, sometimes our comparison yeah. and our analogies uh, can be hurtful in themselves and uh, and whether it's the analogy of uh what murder or if it's even down the road of well pedophilia i wouldn't affirm anything about that and mm. And then the jump on the slippery slope slide of like if yeah. we if we affirm this, we've got to affirm everything. And and so I think that's me resting through a, a bunch of things all at once. But there's some some things that we have to. Uh, I don't think I've got it sorted. But finding that how how can we? Is that always going to be tough? Is it always going to be? That's where we fully rely on the Holy Spirit because there's no other way for it. Um, I guess I don't know if there's a question there, but is it always going to be tough? Is that is this just <laughs> going to be always going to be a tough conversation well, for Christians to work through? On, on one level, there will always be elements that are tough because the gospel is offensive. You know, to those who are is offensive, those who have been saved of the wisdom of God. That's how things should be, actually. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's yeah. one level that yes, this is how things work, and and as you said, that's why the reality is only when the spirit of God works and God does something, which is actually reassuring to us as well. We don't have to be the ones who get people to play to accepting stuff. Only the spirit of God can do that. But wonderfully, he chooses to partner with us. Will it always be the case on this particular issue? I expecting our lifetimes, yes. Uh, whether it will be in 100, 200 years time, I don't know. I mean, I think it is a particular thing of now uh, that this thing of to accept someone and love someone, you have to accept everything they believe about themselves and they choose to do. Um, I don't think that would have been the same I don't know, 100 plus years ago. It's partly linked to this identity thing. One of the reasons that sexuality and gender are such um, controversial and uh, and topics which will, uh, very emotive topics and topics where people do feel affirmation needs to be agreement is because it's identity. It's not just that you're saying you disagree with a certain element of how someone chooses to live their life. It's saying you disagree with their perspective of who they are. And actually from their perspective, you are denying who they are. And all of us are rightly not happy when people deny who we really are and ask us to suppress who we really are. Um, yeah. And so you know, that, that's why it's such a, one of the reasons it is such a controversial and difficult subject, which is yet another reason why we need to talk about identity. And in one-on-one conversation, it's not very easy to go from the, here's my view to a Christian, but by the way, it's not pushing your way because that's just not who you really are. That's not easy to do. But it's one of the reasons why we must a background start the conversation have the conversation about identity um and so i think part of it is that there's like the philosophical underpinnings i also think and hope that there are it doesn't always work but there are times and ways that we can just do our actions show that our acknowledgement that we don't agree with certain uh choice or behavior doesn't mean rejection of the person that is no literally through seeking to everything we can to maintain relationship through continuing the friendship as it was before showing in the way we interact with the person that the choice they've made or the thing they're doing doesn't change the way we feel about them and some people just won't that won't be enough some people that will kind of put us in the bad camp but for some people it will and that's i think should always be our priority how do we work hard at relationship and it's why as always these things it's not just about abstract ideas it's not even just about teaching good teaching it's so it's about relationship and that is key and one thing comes to mind i've just started a book literally the first chapter um 
published a couple of years ago by the Gibbet Company called How to Be the Bad Guys, which is exactly this thing of how is it that we've become <laughs> that by being a Christian, no, you're no longer kind of a bit foolish and you know unscientific to believe in God, mm-hmm. or now actively abhorrent and harmful and offensive by believing in God and what the Bible says. It's a, uh, a quick change. The, the issue now isn't the kind of new atheism, it is the stuff of sexuality and gender. And this book is going to go on to, you know, I've heard it's good, talking about how do we live with that reality? And we probably can't change the fact that we're viewed as the bad guys, but how can we be the best bad guys we can be, in a sense? <laughs> and and be the best, I guess the best, I think you use that phrase, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. And I think be the best expression of Jesus and the best uh, way of bringing the gospel in that context, uh, which we can't change, but we can change how we or do our best in that context. Mm. I think you're right, like the, there is... Um... There is going to be this inevitable clash because I've I've thought about what what you were like the question you brought up Phil it is there's there's two different accounts of human flourishing about what what it means to be human and how to, how to flourish so on one hand you've got um, you know this classical you know uh, view sort of break based on autonomy like if I express something as an individual it's good like if I if I uh, decide to live a certain way, identify a certain way, wear certain things. The mere basis that I have chosen it autonomously as an individual uh, is good. And there's something we value, especially in like medical ethics, about respect for autonomy. You know, respecting someone's uh, uh, their their preferences. And yet, on the other hand, you've got this alternative camp of, of human flourishing, which is Christianity. And you're saying actually, um, actually, you merely choosing something freely almost existentialist isn't it like you know you you just choosing your own way makes it makes it necessarily good and and christianity is saying actually that's not the case actually because of your sinful nature you will have inclinations and want to choose things that actually will not promote human flourishing and actually you can only truly flourish by being connected to god um and um and, and by virtue of that you simply cannot you know you will have to make uh you know certain judgments about things actually these these are not good for you you're not going to flourish if you do these things in in the way that God wants you to, and on the other account is flourishing is, as I said, is just mm-hmm. merely choosing things freely. And so, you know, because they're too they they they're exclusive. Those those accounts can't really be they they can't they can't be put together. They are they're ex, they they exclude each other, and um, and so there there's inevitably going to be conflict between between those views. So I think like like I, I'm going to get that book, um, Andrew. It sounds it sounds very good. So because of that. Because we we believe flourishing is connected to to knowing God, being in relationship, right relationship with God, it's it's it, it's it's always going to come into conflict with with with, with the alternative. So yeah. we're, all, we're always going to be viewed as bad. We're always going to be yeah. viewed as bad because we're restricting yeah. people's. We're trying to. It will be perceived yeah. as respecting people, um, compromising people's freedoms. Saying you know, actually, there are no boundaries. Just do what you want. We're really saying no. There are boundaries, and within these boundaries, you can flourish. Yeah. And actually, if you go, if you stray beyond these boundaries, actually, you're you're not going to flourish in a way that we think is um, is is going to be good for you. Yeah, which like the identity thing is one of these really pronounced cultural narratives, and we must speak about it because you no, know, many people in our churches also think, well, is it really right to say that this is the teaching for trans people or gay people, or whatever? Because so many of our people actually believe exactly the narrative we just told. We must directly address that. And winsomely show that the Christian vision is more life-giving. There are there are very good, reasonable, uh, aesthetic and logical reasons to believe the Christian vision of that story is 
better and more life-giving and more likely to be correct than the secular version. If we never talk about these things, people don't realize that. And again, it's revealing, unmasking what's going on in the world around us so people spot it and can see the reasons to stick with a Christian view, not an alternative view. I realize we're, we're coming to uh, time. There's, there's one question that I think is actually quite a vital pastoral question that we'll, we'll hit. Unfortunately, we can't get to the, there's, a, there's another question in there, but I don't think we'll have time to hit it. Um, but this I've is, uh, you, you've got time. All right, that's, yeah. that's fine. We'll, we'll try and get to both of them before we ask our last question, which is about <laughs> resources, which you've already shared a couple of, but it'd be interesting to answer that, ask that question. This one's about pronouns. Um, how do we handle that as, a, as Christians? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that's a sort of open conversation. I know there are certain people that would just say, no, never. If they are clearly male, I will address them as him, he. If they're clearly female, how would you counsel friends? And maybe we'll do that sort of two-level friends mm-hmm. and then pastors. Is there a difference? Are they the same? Oh, the relational aspect is, is so important. So, yeah, how would you respond? Yeah, it's a bit like the um, the earlier question about kind of labels, same sex attraction, gay. It's uh, a huge and very controversial and divisive topic. And and as <laughs> like with that, one, I like to try and find a bit of a middle middle path, I guess, mm. um, in various ways. Um, yeah, I, I think also so I, I'm not convinced it's a one size fits all answer. I think situations are different, so I, I won't give them. And I don't think it's helpful to one size fits all. Things to think through are what do we mean when we use a pronoun. So when we refer to someone as he, in general, are, are we affirming I'm aware of what's below your trousers and your underwear? Or are we saying I'm aware of how you are presenting yourself and how you want to be addressed? It's a very legitimate question. So if some people say if we use a, someone's uh, tro- the pronoun they ask us to use rather than what aligns their biological sex, we're pronouncing a lie. Well, only if pronouns definitely always only refer to biological sex, which arguably they may not do. Uh, it might just make sense to address the person who is dressed in a certain way, has taken a certain name, lives their life in a certain way by the pronoun that aligns with that. Um, there's a really helpful um, essay, pastoral paper from the Center for Faith and Sexuality, uh, Preston Sprinkles Organization in America, by a guy called Greg Coles, where he talks about this. And he just says, I can't remember how he even does it, but he's, he's an English grad, and he makes a, quite a convincing argument that pronouns do not refer to biological sex, they refer to kind of how we live our lives, how we present ourselves, therefore it's not a lie to use a pronoun. I think that's helpful to think about and recognize. He also really helpfully points out that most trans people, if you refer to them with a pronoun they ask you to use, they're not assuming from that that you agree with their decision to transition or to present themselves in that way. So we also think, you know, we worry that it shows um, a level of acceptance we don't want to show or agreement we don't want to show. That's not necessarily the case. It's just worth kind of problematizing those kind of ideas. And I think from the pure level of maintaining relationship, often it's a vital thing. If it's someone you want to maintain relationship with, especially someone who's maybe not a follower of Jesus, and you want the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus, to tell them the good news of the gospel, chances are if you're not prepared to use the pronouns that they're asking you to use, that relationship's going to die in the water. Mm. And I think it's better to maintain the relationship for the sake of it to introduce them to Jesus than it is to not, particularly because we shouldn't expect them to be living the way Jesus wants them to be if they're not yet claiming to be a follower of Jesus. I don't quite see the mm. issue there. I think with the Christian, it is more different and more difficult and more nuanced. And, and I don't know if I would see the division between, between a friend and a pastor. I wonder if the division is more between a Christian and a non-Christian. And, and yeah, and that it can could be unhelpful to use the pronoun someone desires you to use rather than one like their biological sex. 
but actually it depends where in the journey you are. If it's that first mm. conversation of, I never told anyone at church this, but actually I transitioned three years ago. I'm biologically male, but I live as a woman. I'm not going to say, oh, so now I've got to start using, where well, I said male mm-hmm. pronouns for you. Um, but actually, if further down the line, we've come to the conclusion, or if actually we've reached the point where I've said, I believe this is what the scriptures say. It's what we the te- church would teach. And even if they don't agree with that, that might be a point, and I'm not even sure it would be, it might be a mm. point at which I would start using it because they know why I'm doing that, I guess. Um, the pushback people would give to the kind of position I would give is, you know, by using the pronoun you are uh, a firm, you're propagating a lie and every time a person hears the pronoun used, it makes them feel more like that is who they are. And language is powerful, I don't doubt that. But I think on balance, the benefit for building a relationship is probably better. Which means, in my very roundabout way here, I'm leaning towards, I probably usually would use the pronoun someone asked me to use, but I do understand why people have objections to that. And there might be context for someone who's a believer and we've had ongoing conversations about what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. There might be a point where I actually it's best to use pronouns referring to the biological sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think I'm similar and, and I... And I've only met a, a, few, a few, and really talked to one who has transitioned, one person who's transitioned, and it it does in that interaction to even contemplate calling them the wrong, just it seems it seems arrogant and harmful yeah. in that I don't have that relationship to even consider not doing it, and I guess that's it would raise a whole level of interaction that would yeah last a few minutes and be offensive and i'd lose any chance of of friendship yeah. or, or relationship to continue uh speaking about anything alone <laughs> christianity yeah. Yeah. um just seems a very odd thing to to do so forthrightly uh, mm. to anyone and and i think in in ways to to sort of branch that out to other topics to I've heard some have sort of used this kind of idea. I've got to demolish strongholds before bringing the gospel, and so I'm going to demolish Islam. I'm going to demolish their beliefs. And if you're if you're treading on someone's sacred stuff, they're not going to hear you bring the good news. They're just mm-hmm. going to be turned off by the, your your actions. And I think we're we're not called to be Joshua walking through Babylon. <laughs> like we were in Babylon, we have this way of the exile. We, we are called to love others, and uh, and and yeah, in that way, that's a very different call in this time. And and while there's mm-hmm. a time to critique culture, which is I think what we're doing. I think we're doing that here. There's also a way of, of handling it sensitively without. Yeah, without ruining people uh, and and what they hold dear. Um, Dan, have you got anything to sort of follow on from that? Um, from your perspective, is there is there any sort of line within the sort the sort of uh, medical side of things? Like, someone comes in, is it always right to use pronouns talked about? Um, what's the kind of or is it just it's just like the world people have dif- different views you know uh i'm i'm i'm, I'm like sounds like both of you i i would just use whatever pronoun uh, providing it's uh you know on the, the gender binary you know he sh- he she uh yeah. i probably have some discomfort i'm not sure what i would do if someone said they were z or zoo or yeah. 
uh, because then you start getting to in, into realms in where in which I don't know. It, it, it's hard to think about because I can I can then I can I can argue with myself because I can think of I can, I can think of good arguments because the more I think about it, no I think I would do that and then I, I can think of a, an equally sort of um, plausible view against what I just said. And then I can, I can, I have this internal conflict. So I'm, I, I'll be honest. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But in in practice, I've always, um, you know, referred to the pronoun that 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 that, that someone has is presenting themselves as. You know, if they're presenting as a woman, I'll just use she around. Them. If they're presenting as a man, I'll I'll use that. It's not necessary because I've I feel like I've capitulated and suddenly think that um, you know males can be females and females can can be males um but i think it's respect it's the respectful thing to do and it feels yeah. uh, i think it's probably the right thing to do uh but it does you know i can i can imagine being in situations where uh i wouldn't i wouldn't feel comfortable using certain terms creative terms uh on ones that are not sort of common parlance um but yes i i, I yeah i wouldn't want to i i think there are there are, there are Good arguments on, on both sides, but I think it's the, res- yeah. the right and respectful thing to do. Mm. Cool. Any any further thoughts on that, Andrew? Or uh, only that? I mean, I, I don't think I've been, been in a situation where I've been asked to use one of the kind of pronouns that goes beyond the standard binary of male and female. In some ways, I think they remove some of the problem with with using a pronoun of someone's experience, gender, not their biological sex. You run the people would say both you're lying about their biological sex. And affirming mm. the wrong thing, you kind of, I think you, you, you kind of remove half of that. You're not saying they are the other sex. You're just saying they are. You're potentially yeah. saying they're not the sex. So I think I find that almost less problematic, almost than using the opposite. And what I do quite like, and where, maybe where pastorally for someone, you know, which we have to worry for some people, pronouns are genuinely distressing, and sometimes that's hard for us to understand. Pastorally, mm. I might recommend that some of us can't use the pronouns their biological sex. They do use gender-neutral pronouns of they and them. Because we do do that in English. It's less common, but we do mm-hmm. use they and them as singular pronouns in English. And I think as an accommodation to help people while they're experiencing the pain of gender dysphoria and they're navigating what does Christian faithfulness look like if they're following Jesus, that's a nice way of doing that. I think a good way of doing that. Mm. So I feel most comfortable maybe with that option. Um, and I think, yeah, pastor, that might be a good way to point people if it is a particularly painful or difficult thing for them. Yeah. I, I, I do something so I, I use that a lot more now like, I just think there's a precedent for it in the English language and yeah. a lot of Christians are really like no you're capitulating you're not like I use they <laughs> literally all the time yeah. like mm-hmm. like it, it's it's literally I've, I've always used they uh, I don't yeah. I don't feel like there's any um, compromise involved so I, I would strongly disagree with, with Christians who feel like they're uncomfortable they're they're capitulating uh to culture by using they like you, you've probably done it by accident thousands of times <laughs> uh there's, there's no difference in doing it intentionally um so uh yeah no i, I like you I, I think using they is is is, is equally valid mm-hmm. there's i just thought of when, when you use they that there is a potentially a line of thinking in culture that would be interesting to critique at some point but i think it's going to open another rabbit hole um so, shall I ask it? Shall we just go for it? How, how are you guys doing? Are I you think right? you've passed the uncovered the rubber hole already, so now we feel like you need yeah, to yeah, say yeah, so now you're curious. Well, okay. So, 
with with the kind of language side of things, it's I, I guess it's trying to find the line. This is something I'm trying to process. Maybe with the person in front of me, I'm trying to work out how blunt I'd be back if they said this to my face. A certain person <laughs> came uh, in the news mentioned that they were they they refer to themselves as they they are male but we're then saying that they would become a mother so i'm trying to work out where <laughs> where the line is i guess and how blunt because i have an internal reaction to that that just goes that's not possible there's just nothing about that sentence makes any sense at all but then there's the person who's clearly making this claim and trying to put that person in front of me as a pastor, how do I respond? Mm. Um, without, and again, it's, it's trying to work this out of, I know a lot of people would just be that stupid. And I'd say, I'd say it to them face to face. I guess maybe there is a time and a line that, that we do have to say, look, you've just said something that breaks the English language, breaks biology and just does not work. But, I mean, have you have you processed that far <laughs> at all? Uh, I don't know if I have, but my answer, you know, I think to me, structures I'll talk about are so helpful. My answer, I, I definitely and consciously would not say that's stupid what I know about. I say, okay, well, tell me your story. How is it you've reached this point? I feel like I'm coming at chapter 10 and there's a whole lot of chapters I've mm -hmm. missed. Help me understand. You know, I, I, I do think that's the Jesus response, not the crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but because, you know, that's, because, true. that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Because there could be all manner of reasons why that person has always longed to be a mother. And to you and I, that may feel, yeah, we, can never, we can never conceive of that. But there, you know, it might be very unlikely, but that may be a heartbreaking story behind why mm. they desperately long to be a mother. And what a beautiful thing if there's heartbreak to be able to bring Jesus. That, that, that what seems like a crazy statement could be a powerful opportunity to bring the compassion and the love and the restoration and the good news of Jesus. And I don't want to miss that by getting on my kind of intellectual hobby horse. That's absolutely what I would do. And, and one of the notes, and the conversation might go in that direction, the conversation might not. And so they might be like, well, what do you mean my mother? In what, in what, what qualifies someone as a mother? You know, you, could, you might get to a point where you have interesting intellectual conversations about it. It might be actually, and the chances are actually you'd find a heart issue behind it and uh, an experience and stuff. And so the power of the... I feel like I'm, I'm missing out of the story here. Help me understand, how did you got to this point? Tell me more about, more about yourself. Shows you the right direction to go. So I would do, yeah, the same thing That's again. Really <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> and, and don't don't be like how I initially reacted. And, and it's all, I think for me, the thing I always want to ask Christians is, surely our role is to try and you know, win people, love people, not win arguments. God doesn't need us to defend his truth for him. I think there's a role for us to help people see the goodness of God's word and God's truth. God does not need us to defend his truth for him. Mm. He does need us. Or he has called us and invited us to share his love and the gospel with people. And that fact radically changes how you interact with people. Your aim is not to win an argument or correct people or, you know, deal with the madness in the world. Your aim is to reach into people's hearts and lives or to, or to be invited into his hearts and lives and then bring Jesus into that. And some of us would rather win the argument than do that. But actually, I think we need our hearts reshaped so we do the thing I think Jesus is calling us to do more. Amen. Mate, that's so helpful. Dan, you got you got anything on that? Were you no, I, I plead the fifth. 
<laughs> I don't think I can go any further with that. I think I just want to say thank you for that model as well. And I think that's this has been really helpful to think through uh, where that can apply. And I think uh, given the some of the live chat, that's that's been really helpful to apply that in in different scenarios. Um, I'm coming to listen to my body, and it's telling me that it's uh, <laughs> time, for, time for me. Uh, last question, Andrew. I and mean, this is such a massive topic, and I think even after an hour forty, we haven't really, well, maybe we have scratched more than the surface. But there's, there's a a, no, a lot in there to sort of for for those wanting to dig further, maybe even like from from a more medical perspective, but or pastoral perspective. Maybe if you've got sort of a cross section of resources that you've yeah. found incredibly helpful as you've gone through this, that would be that'd be great. Yeah. I came prepared with a pile, so I watched Anne's last week. Ah, uh, the first, nice. The yeah, first one I don't have in print, I have it only digitally, is a book Preston Sprinkler has just published. It actually publishes the 1st of March in the UK okay. called Embodied, Embodied. Yeah. yeah, which by far is the best one-volume Christian treatment of the subject. It's exceptionally good. And he wonderfully does this thing I've been trying to do about how do we get the, the truth of God and the heart of God. So just as the one-volume overview, Preston Sprinkler Embodied is the way to start. Also, starting Christian kind of things, this one, Understanding Genders Forever Mark Your House, about kind of five or six years old now. He's a Christian psychologist, and so he's slightly more veered on the kind of medical and psychological understanding, but very under, very helpful for that and for um, the reality of what gender dysphoria is like, different treatments that are used, diagnostic um, criteria, different stuff like that. So very useful. And he gives a framework of different ways of Christians looking at this, um, like a taxonomy, which I think is quite helpful as well. For those who want to kind of, I guess, think deeply at different Christian options on this, this book is really good, Understanding Gender Identities, which, as it says clearly, is one of these four views books. So there's four different mm -hmm. chapters from four contributors of different uh, views on this, and then each contributor responds to those chapters as well. So really helpful to see how Christians dialogue on this, um, on this topic. Um, and then a little plug as well, I then have done my own responses to each chapter on Think Theology, uh, the blog thinktheology.co.uk, because I think all of them actually have some weaknesses. Uh, and so I've given my own quite sustained critiques. And it's just a really helpful way of engaging in very different perspectives, all of which are Christian or uh, claim to be Christian on the conversation. Um, thinking then more broadly, if you just want to understand the topic, not specifically from a Christian thing, this book is now old, like nine or 10 years old, Transgender 101 by... Nicholas Tyke, T-I-C-H, but it's still recommended um, by people as a good kind of 101 introduce, introduction to some of the or key aspects of the topic. Interestingly, some of the language he uses now actually wouldn't be uh, what is used by most people or liked by most people, but it is helpful as an overview from a, a fairly, a fairly level-headed secular perspective, I would say. And similarly helpful is this book, Trans, by Dr. Az Hakim. Az Hakim is fascinating. He is the only person to run an NHS psychological service for people with gender dysphoria, both pre-transitioning and post-transitioning, which ran a number of years ago. Um, and he's one of the main voices at the moment speaking out about the fact that the way that the NHS is uh, seeking to help people with gender dysphoria, especially young people, may not be the best and that some psychological involvement should be able to assessment of really should be involved. So really kind of really detailed on what transitioning is like, the different options, interesting discussions on different ways that psychological influence or um, therapeutic interventions might help, which is largely not talked about. So fascinating, the kind of different way of looking at it. And then one other one, if you want to look 
at the kind of broader cultural conversation of these issues. This book by Ryan T. Anderson, When Harry Became Sally, is much more about that kind of um, public policy side of things, uh, what people would call ideology side of things. And it's quite, a, again, quite a level-headed, moderate approach to it. I think sometimes those kind of conversations are done badly. But I, I didn't like right. that book. You didn't? Why not? I just disagree. I, 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 I was one of those books I was really looking forward to reading because I really like uh, I, I like him. Um, but I, I, I took issue with a lot of the, the evidence. I think he used he misused a lot of the evidence and the data um, yeah. and and made uh, I think his claims were overly strong and were not um, weren't actually supported by the evidence. Uh, right. like, well, but, yeah, like, he's quite skewed. The evidence base he used is skewed. I do think that is. The left there's do you know anything comparable though anything that's better at it there's so little the, the only thing i the only book i've read recently again this doesn't focus it does focus some of the trans stuff is deborah so's book um the end of gender she's a sexologist and neuroscientist and i thought that was an excellent book it's from a secular perspective mm. um but i thought that's it, it I, I think you would really enjoy reading that book um both for because the stuff that engages with sex transgender uh genderism gender, gender dysphoria um uh, the whole whole host of stuff, and I thought it was a really excellent book. But I, yeah, the the the, the Anderson book, I, I, it was one of those bits I said I really wanted to enjoy, but I just didn't. I think it it, it was it was uh, preaching to the choir, and it wasn't. It, I, he let me down a bit. I don't think it was critical enough, uh, and it's not. I I I. I and the funny thing is, I agree with his his overall yeah, yeah, conclusion. Yeah. I just I think they he he um he made them stronger than what I think the evidence can actually state. That's probably a fair critique, and so probably read it with critical eyes. Yeah, <laughs> I wish. Yeah, and I wish there was the same thing, but slightly better, slightly more moderate. Um, yeah. Which kind of Mark Yarhouse's research is slightly more moderate. One of the problems just is there is so little decent peer reviewed. It's great. It actually is growing, which is encouraging. It's growing peer reviewed evidence. It's very hard. It's no one's collated it yet. It's one of the issues. So uh, yeah, okay. Read with a, a cautionary advisory <laughs> warning to be critical. And maybe actually, I haven't got to Maybe you've mentioned Nancy Pierce's book, Love Thy Body. Is exceptional yeah. as a book full stop. And I, yeah, I don't think the chapter on trans is quite as I'd write it, but it is helpful. And certainly in terms of underlying philosophy, I love that body is is right on it, yeah. I just want to sort of second, uh, Preston Sprinkle's sort of, his podcast is basically his research for the book. Yeah, yeah. And there's been, there's been a few really key interviews that have softened me to some of the more mm -hmm. what seem like extreme aspects of trans transgender not in the sense that it's suddenly okay but just hearing the hurt in some of the people he's chatting to he's managed to get people with yeah. some very extreme forms of gender dysphoria and just hearing them the, the sort of gut embodied reaction to mis mispronouns um or and, and that that sort of thing you just hear it in in the way that, that they're voicing it trying to explain how they feel and you know, this was really hurting just talking about talking about it is <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not yeah, even yeah. hearing it. And and so while we are learning, we have, in, in some cases, we will have to learn quite quickly. If we're, if we're not talking about this in our churches, then we're, go we're just going to do more damage and, and we need to be really careful with that. And so I think I think it's theology in the raw. If you're going to mm -hmm. go onto a podcast, there's some really, really good interviews there. Um, plus, he's yeah. got a great name. I'm Preston Sprinkle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a good thinker. He's, he's a brilliant. Yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. Um, yeah, and I think that that leads nicely. One of the things I encourage Christians to do is 
to find and listen to stories. No, go and watch some of the vloggers. Go and watch the documentaries. And don't watch it so you can complain about how awful culture is being and you know, all this kind of stuff. Watch them so you can connect with the stories. Don't look for the ideology. Look for the heart. The thing, we know the ideology. We get that. We're quite good at the what the truth is. We're awful at the reality of experience. Look for the heart in the people who are in the on where, where is it, vlogs, documentaries, whatever, and, and let that move you, and, and let your heart be shaped as God's heart is shaped in response to what a good heart responds to them. Awesome. Cool. Uh, sorry, there, there are a few questions in there that we're just going to have to, uh, unfortunately, miss out. One, one thing I, I would ask, though, just because it's quite an important one, because it's hitting the younger people. We've talked a little bit about reaching youth. Is there a resource specifically aimed for parents working this out that you've interacted with if not we'll try and find one that we might be able to recommend but um there is a little book published by the good book company a couple of years ago i can't remember what it's called which is for parents specifically it has kind of chapters for kind of i don't know three to five year olds five to nine year olds nine to thirteen or something it's kind of three issues which is relatively going to be short it can do a certain amount agenda you know it's a good book company definitely it's a book for parents for teenagers, I'm just not sure there is. Preston's book for teenagers is good, Understanding uh, Living in a Grey World, and it has a chapter on trans, and it's a good chapter. Um, beyond that, I'm just not sure there is. Um, uh, there are talks I've done in youth context on the Living Out website, and well, she's the Living Web website anyway, actually. I'm contractually obliged to that. I'm sure livingout.org. <laughs> I'm plenty and a growing number of resources on trans, and a load of stuff from me as well on thinktheology.co.uk, some of which is from a youth context. I'm not aware of much, if anything, in print, sadly. There's um, not one for Pep, but is there's a there's a sort of body positive book produced by um, some of the, some of the feminists. I think it was written by Rachel Rooney. It's um, I am my body, and my body is mm. me, yes. um, yeah. which is um, sort of affirming the how the positive being positive about the body, like you you are a body. Uh, and I found that's quite a, lo a lovely book to to read to children, just to, yeah. to reinforce that to them that they they have a sexed body. Uh, you know, it's that's important. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone said Preston who Preston Sprinkle. I'll put it in the chat. Um, theology in the raw. I'll put some of these in the description. I'll, I'll try to do that over the next day or so. But um, Andrew, it's been that really helpful important conversation so many things to take away from that that um but yeah thanks for the time and okay. uh thank you very much for the model of, of pastoral care and bringing it to jesus lots of good stuff in that so thanks nice really thank you cool i'll just uh finish up so thank you everyone for uh, watching and your questions have really helped the um the conversation and i hope that you've got a lot of good stuff out of it like we have if you'd like to uh help this channel we do have a patreon um we're very grateful for any support received it helps pay for the website and hosting and things like that but our expenses are minimal we just enjoy having conversations so please do just keep watching sharing liking commenting um and do feel free to give feedback the benefit of being on patreon is that you get to input a little bit more and give us direct feedback and um 
as well as potentially would like to open up some of these conversations where you can actually sit in the background and uh, potentially interact with our guests after the show. We're not, we're not quite sure how that will work out yet, but it's something we're considering. So do look at that and do let us know how we can uh, be a better channel, I guess. Uh, we're up for it. Um, we just enjoy talking. So thanks to Andrew. Thanks to everyone uh, watching and have a good rest of the evening. Bye-bye. for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you hear please do give us a subscribe on youtube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback get in touch let us know what you think if you really enjoyed the content and want to support it find us on patreon.com